0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians Daily. I'm Sarah Brady Wagner, and I'm here today with Reinhold. Hello. Today we're going to discuss the Laquan McDonald shooting, recently the... um, Officer in this involved in this shooting was found guilty of murder and in the second degree, and guilty of sixteen individual counts of aggravated battery, uh, but found not guilty of official misconduct. Uh, We wanted to go through what this case is about. I'm sure you'll be hearing more about it from people in your daily life, or at least in your social media realms. And we want to make sure that everybody has a full understanding of the issue. So um, I'm just going to jump right into discussing the timeline then. Um, In October of 2014, Officer Van Dyke shot 17-year-old Laquan McDonald 16 times uh, in Chicago. What was notable about this shooting was that uh, the policy at the time was not to release any information on the uh, issue since it was an ongoing investigation so we didn't have any um, like videos that immediately came out like we do in more recent cases Uh, the video that was critical to this case actually did not come out until a year later and that was only after a court order to release the video which then showed the officer shooting Laquan McDonald not once but 16 different times. Uh what was also kind of interesting about this case was that in April of 2015 the city council in Chicago voted unanimously in favor of paying a 5 million dollar settlement to the McDonald family and uh, in this case there were no um there was not a lawsuit that was filed this was done without the family having in any way officially asked to be compensated. Um, it's a very, it's not an unprecedented situation, um, but it is unique in kind of what it says about the city accepting responsibility um, for the situation. But at this point, the officer in question was still not charged. Um, the tribune during December of 2014 all the way up through December of 2015, the Chicago Tribune came across emails that were released um, from the city hall administration at the time that showed how the government was trying to handle the aftermath of the shooting and scrambling to kind of cover it up and um, make it as much of a minimized issue as they could. But, uh, in May of 2015, journalist Brandon Smith filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the Chicago Police Department asking for the videos uh, from the night that Van Dyke shot and killed McDonald. After three extensions, the Chicago Police Department denied the request for the video, um, and they cited an ongoing investigation into the shooting, which they refused to provide any more details for. Um, in August of 2015, Smith then filed uh, charges. Well, he filed against the Chicago Police Department to release the videos. And in November, a Cook County judge uh, issued a ruling ordering the city to release the police dash cam video, which they then did. And conveniently, as soon as they released the dash cam video, he was charged. uh, The officer in question, Van Dyke, was charged immediately with first degree murder.
1: But was the was he charged um, before or after the uh, riots that started because of the release of the dashcam video
0: I think he was charged um at the about the same time it was the dashcam video came out it um, came out on the 24th um, and the same day right. he was he was charged
1: right okay so they, they did it just as they released it i'm trying to kind of curious about that on um, why they didn't charge it beforehand or if this nobody in the prosecutors office even saw the video or uh, had been hidden that well even internally
0: um well it looks like there were actually additional videos that still hadn't been released so uh there were more videos released afterwards in november but the protests and the riots themselves um lasted from november to march so long after they had charged um, the officer. The protests lasted from November of 2015 until March of 2016 and involved a series of protests, many lasting several hours, uh, specifically including the chant 16 shots, which was, uh, and they called for the mayor to resign and for the superintendent of police to um, be fired, actually. And in December of 2015, um, the superintendent actually was fired. Uh, they issued the, um, uh, the, the statement issued at the time was, we have to recognize that if we don't like the way the system works, change the system right. I, wanted to, I described to you all the things that people wanted from police oversight and outside investigatory agencies exist in Chicago. And at the end of the day, they didn't like the results. And somebody had to take the fall for it. And somebody had to take the hit. Um, that was the statement from the superintendent about his being fired. So, um, not really taking much responsibility for it, uh, but saying that somebody had to be the sacrificial lamb. And that's kind of a pattern that we, we see throughout this case is, um, a real sense of uh indignity not not necessarily from the rank and file officers in the child police department but from the uh higher up that are involved in specifically in the cover-up in this case um there's there's not a whole lot of taking responsibility even now after we have you know the officers convicted of second-degree murder
1: and as i read it there's a lot more cover-up that was done uh behind the scenes i don't know if you want to get that in the 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 timeline layout, but the, the the video that was captured from the Burger King, for instance, was uh, somehow that there was an 86 minute gap that was deleted from the surveillance footage, right? It really looks like there was a, a huge cover up here. We had several officers um, lying about their you know what was said, what happened. Their testimony was was proven to be uh not accurate with what the the video ends up showing.
0: Yeah, the, the officer's testimony really um seemed to focus a lot on as as they as officer involved shootings often do, that the officer had uh, feared for his life and specifically uh there was a lot of testimony about the look in his eyes. Um I know one of the issues that was brought was that he was on um PCP, I think was what they uh, said he was on at the time. But that once you got the video uh, come came out, there wasn't a whole lot to corroborate the way that the officer's story went. But that they stuck with that story. That's I mean, to me, that was that's what floored me so much about this, um, and kind of feeds into that worry about a cover up. Is you know when when you've got that many people involved in a lie, you stick to the lie even when it starts falling apart.
1: Right, and it's a it's a pattern we see over, you know, a lot of these different shootings like this. They they protect each other and they will do what they can to try to, uh, you know, deflect any attention to from from the actual event and from the officer involved.
0: Well, that's been called a um, culture of silence among police officers, and I you know I've I've read some into uh, the difference between. Rank and file police officers, as opposed to you know your your sergeants and your chief of police and your commissioners, um, and the kind of cultural differences within that policing um, community. And I guess, I guess, who do you think holds more responsibility for that? Is it is it the individual officers themselves, or is it more on you know like the commissioner who got fired?
1: Well. What I would say is that in individual cases, it's really on the officers themselves. They sh- they should be taking upon themselves to be uh, good stewards of their role of, of defending and protecting people, not defending themselves, as it were. So they should be willing to come forward and say this. So on an individual basis, it's the officers. But when you start to see a pattern of that behavior in a police department, then you really have to focus on those people who are leading the police department, whether or not they're making sure that their officers are going out with the right mindset and wanting to make sure that proper justice is being done. All right. So I think, well, I think that's what you really have to do is start looking at the patterns that are happening within a specific force or not.
0: Um, so one of the other ways to kind of handle that um, more more favored by our friends on the left is what happened then in december of 2015 which would be the u.s attorney general loretta lynch announced that the the justice department was beginning investigation into the chicago police department um and it the it's turned out the that particular investigation um is not what resulted in these charges um and as far as its impact on this case, it didn't play as strongly into it. But what do you think as far as the usefulness or um, even just efficacy of having the federal government step in to kind of mediate these issues where a corruption is just so endemic within a department?
1: Well, you really have to have some sort of external uh, independent examination of that. And it's typically been the federal government over the course of the country you know that we've been we've been in existence going and finding that's corruption in in the uh, different locations police forces state local that sort of thing so i I think that you need a watchdog you need a watchdog that has the power of forcing uh testimony applying fines that sort of thing so it's got to be something that's within the law enforcement realm government that sort of thing uh, so I think the federal makes the most sense to do that with. Um, unfortunately, I see sometimes this becoming used as a political tool, which is always the problem when you start getting po- politics involved and government involved in these in these types of things. But don't really know if there's a better option on how to police the police.
0: That's fair. It's a difficult situation because you have to have somebody who can step in as, you know, as a rule enforcer or the enforcer of the rule of law.
1: Right. I mean, we have these boards now, these, uh, the civilian boards who will rec make recommendations, but if nobody's taking that recommendation on and willing to actually apply those recommendations onto the police, then there's no force behind any of it. So at some point you need some way to, to, uh, use, use that power to, you know, bring people to justice as or.
0: Well. well, it's funny that you suggest that cuz a week after that investigation was announced, uh Mayor Emanuel in Chicago announced the creation of the Task Force on Police Accountability, which specifically was uh created to study the processes, oversight and training at the Chicago Police Department and exactly what you said, make recommendations.
1: Right. And and just the recommendations especially when it's the police force doing itself, right, trying to trying to police itself, internal affairs, that sort of thing, you're going to always run into um, a lot of resistance there, and it's going to be very hard to do any kind of, um, it, to get any kind of justice for, for things that are so egregious that this, like this event, right, so... Again, that's where I think some sort of independent outside body really needs to be involved on some of these cases.
0: So in on December 16th, 2015, Van Dyke was indicted on six counts of first degree murder and on one count of official misconduct. Um, the case started playing out. There were, you know, kind of interesting things that happened on the sidelines to give you an idea of um, just the culture around this whole case. The there were two officers who one was a detective and one was an officer who both had filed reports uh, about this shooting and they were found to be dramatically at odds with the dash cam video that was released. And so in January they were put on desk duty Um, and in March Van Dyke who was suspended without pay as he was indicted on murder charges uh, was actually hired as a janitor by the city's police union. So you know, even even within this this realm of ensuring accountability, there's still um, you know that kind of fr- that fraternal support. I mean, it, it's still everybody making sure to support each other. And I don't know, but I that always kind of gives me conflicted feelings because shouldn't a good officer kind of eschew the bad ones? Isn't that how you? know that they're good
1: right but at what point do they consider that officer bad so how many police were involved in that shooting that um would have spoken to somebody else and and explained to them that what he had done was wrong as as far as a lot of the police knew he had acted completely appropriately on the situation Right, so once the video came out, then that changes, right? But that's um, still it's it's kind of hard for I think for a lot of policemen to um, find fault with their fellow officers because they know that they may be in that same situation and they want somebody to give them the benefit of the doubt as well.
0: Well, I wonder if that's kind of where the conflict between the way that people, the way that you know, individual lay people perceive it. And the way that officers may perceive it comes in is uh, is kind of where you lay that assumption. Um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's difficult to, I, I think it's more difficult for me to kind of assume that everybody had good intentions and everybody was kind of giving the benefit of the doubt when you make an active effort to cover things up.
1: Yeah, there were those who were covering it up very hard, and I think those are the people who weren't looking at it in the right right way. They were trying to just close ranks and defend and get past it as opposed to trying to make sure justice was served.
0: Right. You know, it, it kind of draws into question um, the judgment of those officers is to be able to um, to look at the situation objectively. And, I don't know, I just. Kind of worry how that would uh, then bleed over into the way that they perceive, you know, any individual interaction. So to go through the case timeline, then, um, you have uh, various people who were involved in the case uh, who are fired or who resign. Um, officers who are involved in the case who are found to be lying have filed false police reports things like that are put on um, desk duty or paid leave and again and again the government officials and the police department officials who are involved in the case are unwilling to um, be forthcoming with evidence um, there's an issue with the attorney general saying that Chicago police department, Chicago police officers' emails discussing the Laquan D- uh, Donald shooting are not allowed to be kept secret uh, because the department was trying to keep that as um, documents that didn't need to be considered in the case. And they are official um, communications about the case. So, what ended up happening then in the trial, um, only the one officer who shot Laquan McDonald was tried. And the, the jury declined to convict him of first-degree murder and instead decided to convict him of second-degree murder and to convict him of aggravated battery with a firearm. Um with an individual count for each shot and the, the, the audio actually of um, the juror reading out those verdicts, just one after another is, I mean, it's, it's very impactful, at least to me. I mean, just each individual bullet is another reckless act, but What I found most interesting and haven't heard as much discussion about is the fact that he was found not guilty of um, official misconduct. And of everything in this case, that's the thing that actually surprised me and disheartens me the most is this concept that an officer on duty in his official line of work can murder someone and that's not just me perceiving it as murder That's he has been convicted of murder in a court by a jury of his peers and that's not official misconduct what does that say about the way that we view officers in our society
1: well i think part of the problem is looking at the actual statute for illinois on official misconduct is that there's a lot of words, a lot of verbiage in here specifically stating knowingly does with intent, knowingly performs. And I think because they went with the second degree um, that they were trying to say that he kind of made his mind up at the moment, but he didn't do it in an intentful way to um, improperly discharge his duties. It wasn't I'm premeditated. Sure i not agree with that. Right. So, you know, that, that comes into play a lot with, uh, you know, mens rea is another thing uh, that, that could could be brought up into this. But it's really more a case, I think, of the way the statute is written and probably the way the instructions were given to the jury on this um, as opposed to the jury just saying, well, we don't care about that charge. <coughs> right. Now the question is: Is do we uh, do we accept that? Do we think that there should be a change to that? Is that is that the right way to look at it, or um, or is does there have to be a conversation about whether or not that's something else that should be charged to the to the uh, officer? I mean, he's getting um, he's going to be getting a lot of time for what for his actions. So I'm not sure. If that's something that the jury just said, hey, let's not even quibble too much about this one. If we're not going to agree on it, let's just get this done and and move on with the more serious charges.
0: Well, in sentencing him, um, each of those separate counts, it's the, the sentence is actually kind of um, we're not quite sure how long he's sentenced to yet, because each count um, carries right. a mandatory sentence of six years, but also up to 30 years each. Um, so we're not quite right. sure how they, that's going to play
1: out. Right, and could they claim that they that he's able to serve that concurrently? Right, right. Or is it got to be one after the other? So there there may be some discussions there on the on the sentencing. So do we know when the sentencing is happen, going to happen, or?
0: Um, well, he still also has the opportunity to appeal. Um, appeal, correct. So I'm trying to look through here. Um I've got a couple of of articles up to just make sure there's no set date for um any further sentencing right now it looks like. And it, since he's being charged in state court it really um I b- would probably be better if we had somebody who was more familiar with um Illinois law. But really? um Sometimes those sentencing can be done uh, without a formal hearing in some states. Uh, I'm not sure it's very many, uh, but he does have a mandatory six years for each of those counts, and I don't believe that they can be done concurrently. I think they have to be done consecutively. Um, But again, we still have uh, an appeal, and this may get much I mean, this is not over. I guess is what is what I want to kind of sum that up in is. Well,
1: <laughs> well right, but but with appeals, um, people think, oh, I just I can appeal and I'll, I'll get a, a better thing. You can't really appeal unless you have a reason. I mean, you have to be able to say uh, my my defense failed me. Uh, the the prosecution did this wrong. You know, there's there's usually got to be a a reason to trigger an appeal like that. You can't just always just claim one. So that's that probably is not going to happen too much in this case. I don't know if he's actually going to get an appeal or not
0: from um, this based
1: off of the evidence and everything that was put out.
0: His attorney, his but, attorney has said that the reason that he filed so many pretrial motions was to preserve issues for an appeal in case he was convicted. So um, it at least seems well, yeah, like they were trying and, to plan for it ahead.
1: Yeah, every attorney does that, though. I think in, in a criminal trial case like this, um, just so that they can try to lay groundwork for an appeal in case they lose, that's that's really something that's always in the back of the minds of uh, criminal defense attorneys. Mm-hmm. Um, but the um, the judicial system awarding that appeal then is going to be something that's going to have to be taken into account whether they they do listen to it now. I'm more open to always having an appeal process uh because you never know what the initial trial could do if you find some exonerating evidence or um or you find out that the, the prosecution did something wrong, didn't um hid information, that sort of thing. So it's always good, in my opinion, to have that appeal and go through that process. But pending appeal he should probably be in jail serving this time. I don't think they're just gonna let him out on bail pending appeal.
0: Yeah, I, I'm, my understanding is that he's, he's going to at least be going to jail, um, but that they won't necessarily be transferring into prison immediately. Um, the difference just being one is long-term and one is short-term. So do you think that this has, at least in a legal sense, do you think that this has uh, the bigger impact that I've seen some of the um, news sources kind of try and make it out to be? I mean, I've seen more than one headline to the tune of the you know the secret uh, police silence is going on trial next do you think that this is the um shadow of things to come or is this kind of a a one-time situation where this one officer was convicted but this is not at all um indicative of a greater pattern of criminal justice reform
1: um I don't know if I see it as a, a pattern of criminal justice reform or a or a positive in that regard. I think this is more a case of this was so egregious in the cover-up. This was so egregious in the fact that the, the video shows him, you know, turning away from the officer when the officer says he was pointing, you know, going towards him. So um, it's it's rare that you get that sort of evidence that, you know, the police officer was so out of bounds right a lot of time it's more conflicting that you know the the person is doing something that could be taken if you're in the right frame of mind to be something that needed to be defensive and there's a lot more defense on that case um so i don't know if it's going to make too much of an impact um, nationally on all the police forces uh but i I wish it would i mean I, i think that people need to start seeing this sort of thing and there's a lot more cases than this uh, of, of dash cams and body cams really starting to show um, show what's really going on when the officer says I feared for my life and then you watch the dash cam you watch the body cam and you start to say no that's you, you really were acting in the wrong here so um, I think that more than anything is going to be what helps lead us to some sort of criminal justice reform, not specifically this ish- this one case.
0: Well, that's not as hopeful as some of the uh, accounts that I've seen, but it definitely sounds more realistic. <laughs> as there,
1: well, there was there was another video that was released not too long ago from a uh, a police action shooting that happened several years ago, where a Police officer comes to the uh, an argument that was happening, um, kind of a domestic dispute in the in the street of a neighborhood, and it was snowing out. He gets out of his car, and the the couple's dog, you know, kind of starts to lunge at him a little bit more in a "Hey, who are you?" type of way, not really trying to attack him. It doesn't look like, but the mm-hmm. co- the police officer was actually very. You could tell he was very scared when he when he saw the. Uh, saw the dog. So he goes to shoot the dog slips in the snow and shoots the woman in the belt <gasps> and kills her all caught on footage. The whole cash, the whole uh body cam was released. So you can watch the whole event. And his main concern was, I'm going to go to jail. I'm going to go to jail. Not, I need to help her. And, and, and she lays there for minutes.
0: Oh my God. Before
1: they try to do any kind of, you know, saving of her. And she bleeds out before the ambulance can get there. So these types of these types of things are going to start to, you know, without body cams, without the the uh, dash cams, those sorts of things. This could have really gone. They could have covered this up, you know, and it, and it was kind of covered up for years until this was released and people saw it, um, which caused a lot of outrage. So I, I think. I think that's really where we're going to see the the main benefit of this type of of situation right so
0: well i guess the the last thing i want to say on the matter is um that i actually see so in my state i'm in north carolina uh we actually i think it was last year might have been 2016 but i think it was 2017 just passed a law making it um making it completely illegal to release any body cam video to the public, um, regardless of the status of the case. And to me, that's just, I mean, this is a perfect situation where it shows like that's a law that's written to undermine trust in the police.
1: Right. And, and not only that, that I, I really think that that's going to be found to be, um, not a proper law that's going to have to be struck down, um, Maybe not on a a federal Supreme Court level type thing, but a state, a state level should look at that and say, no, this isn't, um, this isn't good because they've already tried to put in laws that you can't record police yourself, that sort of thing. And that's always been defended that the, the civilians, the individuals have that right, uh, in any interaction with the police that they can record it, but there's still police officers who will say that you can't, and there's still ones who would try to prevent you from doing that or take your video from you, that sort of thing. So I think the courts will step in at some point and say that that's not, you know, a valid law that they can enforce. Uh, But I would be interested to see how that plays out because that could set some precedents that would counter the, you know, the hopeful um, benefit of having that information that, those dash cams and body cams available to watch what the police are doing because they are put into such a high level of trust with given the ability to to use force on citizens. We need to make sure that they are doing that appropriately. And we haven't done a good job of that. Not in the last 20 or 30 years. And I don't know if we ever really have in the United States.
0: Well, that's as good of a thought to end on as any. So, Thank you for joining us today for We Are Libertarians Daily News. We'll see you tomorrow.